Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you from the team behind the environmental magazine, The Ends Report. This week we're going to be exploring why the Environment Agency has decided to cut back its response to pollution incidents. We're going to look at a criminal investigation into a really horrendously smelly landfill. We're going to look at why the management of England's national parks might be shaken up. And then we're going to move on. In a deep dive, we're going to look at a killer whale apocalypse because at the end, we are no strangers to hyperbole. And finally, the Chemical Brothers are going to join us to freak us all out about weed killer. So let's do it. Let's enter the eco chamber. So Happy New Year, everybody. I'm Rachel Salvage. I'm Deputy Editor of the Ends Report. And I'm here with Jamie Carpenter, our editor, and Tess Colley, journalist on the Ends Report. Happy New Year! Happy New Happy Year, New Rachel. Year. <laughs> so the first story that we're going to be talking about today is with regards to the Environment Agency. So in December, the Environment Agency's Chief Executive, Sir James Bevan, sent a very strongly worded message to all staff, warning them essentially against speaking to the media or members of the public or other organisations about any concerns they may have about their own work or the work of the agency itself. He even went as far as threatening staff with a sack if they should dare you know, not comply with this edict. Um, it all seems a little bit strong, a little bit, um, is it over the top perhaps, or is this, is this particularly normal for these kind of agencies? Uh, Jamie, can you tell me what you think about that? Yes, I, I can, yeah. Um, I think the, fir- the first thing I thought was looking at the, um, the title of the, the memo, sort of what we say in public, the responsibilities we all have, it's, it's the sort of subject line that makes you die a little bit inside when you when it pops up in your inbox <laughs> um i suppose on, on the one hand it's, it's a sort of thing when, when you read through it, it it doesn't seem out of the ordinary for a large organization to have have rules around speaking to the media and and, and not bringing bringing your own organization into disrepute um if i said something that that damaged haymarket's reputation i'd i'd expect to face action for that but on the other hand the environment agency isn't a an ordinary organization it's it's responsible for protecting the environment and I think in this context transparency is very important for the public to retain confidence in in what the agency is doing. Exactly there's a public interest case here isn't there I mean it's you know if I if I was moaning because I didn't have enough desk space it's you know no, no one cares and it's of no interest to anybody but if they're saying they can't go and attend pollution incidents or they can't do their jobs then that's entirely different and I don't think that's something that people should necessarily be be silenced on. Has anyone seen what any of the NGOs might have said on this? Yes, well the NGOs aren't at all impressed by this. Um, Guy Linley Adams from the Salmon and Trout Conservation, he said, you know, the public deserves to know when these things are going on. And it's a very sad state of affairs, he said, um, but not altogether surprising given the agency's accumulating tally of failures, which is uh, pretty strong. And Nick Meesham, chief executive from the Salmon and Trout Conservation, he said there are good staff on the ground but the agency does not provide the resources or the funding to allow them to carry out the requirements of their role effectively or indeed adequately. And yeah, I think that's the thing with this story. It's not surprising to have a public body saying, you know, don't bring our name down in public. But if what they're saying is of public importance, then it's not such a good look either to be silencing your staff. Exactly. Well, anyway, it seems to have fallen on uh, deaf ears, or at least a a few deaf ears, because it wasn't too long after that came out that I've been slipped a a number of documents out of the uh, from the Environment Agency staff, showing that they are the Environment Agency has stopped or will be stopping um, looking at a huge number of pollution incidents. So they categorise pollution incidents from one to four, with one being the most serious and four having no impact on the environment. And They've decided that because they don't have the resources, and they say that explicitly, 
that they uh, are not going to attend or report or do anything related to any notification that they get on an incident that they think is category three or four. However, they don't say how they're going to they're going to rate the incident three or four because they're not going to visit it. So I don't know how they're going to know how serious it is or you know, what the source is. But essentially, in a stroke of a pen, that's a, the vast majority of pollution incidents are going to be ignored. Um, and the NGOs on this one are really, really up in arms. Yeah, there's, there's some really, really strong language. Um, <laughs> so Mark Lloyd from Rivers Trust calls the, this approach an appalling scandal. Um, Fergal Sharkey, who's um, never one to uh, make a make a measured comment on this this issue, is his his um, he he says the the obscenity that is is that the environmental agency has reduced its own staff to nothing more than political pawns in a cheap game of Whitehall politics. It's unwarranted. It's unjust, and it's incompetent. Yeah, I think that actually applies to both stories. So, so in terms of the you know what you could loosely call gagging that we talked about earlier. And this, because they're saying, the environment is saying, if, if you criticise the environment agency, then, you know, we're going to look terrible and we're not going to get the funding that we require to do our jobs in the future. So they're kind of holding them hostage in a way. And that doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right to me. No, um, so I, and think I think, it I think it's, um, I think ultimately the, the, the story kind of reflects badly on the, on the government. The, the EA does come in for a lot of criticism, um, but you get the system environmental regulation and environment that you're prepared to pay for. And, and that, that's kind of the message that seems to be coming out of the comments from the um, EA's leadership team. And, and, and I suppose if, if the EA is, is saying it's in a position where the amount of resourcing it has, its disposal means that it can't actually investigate huge numbers of reports of pollution incidents, then, then that's a really serious issue. Yeah. In, in that presentation you were, you were sent, Rachel, it, it's quite striking where it just says quite bluntly, we cannot keep trying to do what we are not funded to do. And that's that's that goes straight to central government, really. Need more money. Exactly, exactly. And they're saying that it's really affecting uh, staff morale and you know their resilience and well-being, which they seem to be quite hot on. But, um, um, you know, here's a trailer. There's a story coming out soon from the Ezra Fort in the next few days <laughs> that will have a little bit more on staff morale. So um, better go to the website and have a look because there'll be something popping up there soon. Um The next story we're going to uh, dig into is pretty unpleasant. It's been going on for a number of months now, and it's related to a landfill called Wally's Quarry in Silverdale in Stoke-on-Trent area. It's been creating terrible smells for a really long time, and the communities that live really close to it, and actually a little bit further away too because the emissions have been drifting, have been saying that these smells are are making them ill. They've had um, a number of uh, health professionals saying that hydrogen sulfide emissions from the sites, which are higher than World Health Organization guidelines, will be making the respiratory illnesses worse. And they've said that this is a catastrophe waiting to happen. Um, What's happened now is that the Environment Agency has been taken to court. There's been a judicial review um, where the mother of a small boy who has respiratory problems has taken the... um, EA to court to say that they're not regulating properly and there has been a case ongoing from this point. So the case has been running for a while now, Jamie. Whereabouts are we on it? We had quite significant development in, in, in December just before Christmas. So um, initially it went to the, the High Court and the, the High Court judge ruled in favour of um, the, the family of Matthew Richards. Um, so so they, 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 the, the, the kind of contention was that um, 
his respiratory health problems were being worsened by fumes in the landfill. Um, yeah. and, and the judge, the judge in, in that case, said that he was not satisfied that the Environment Agency was complying with its legal duty to protect the life of Matthew. The judge found that in order to protect Matthew's human rights, there must be a real and significant change as a matter of urgency and that levels of emissions from the landfill must be reduced in a matter of weeks. So that, that was the initial ruling and that was seen as, as, as a kind of a groundbreaking bit of case law. Um, the Environment Agency appealed and before Christmas that, that appeal was upheld. Um, we, we, don't, we don't know at the moment what the ruling itself says because um, it has yet to be published. So the devil there is in detail. Um, but the, the, the lawyers acting for the Environment Agency argued that the the earlier High Court judgment went too far in ruling that the regulator was not complying with its duties to control emissions and, and also that it didn't take fully into account all the work that was being done by the Environment Agency to resolve the problem. So at the moment, the, the, the kind of earlier groundbreaking ruling has been been overturned by the Court of Appeal. Mm. And the community are really distressed about this, aren't they? And they're furious that the Environment Agency should be spending so much money fighting this case which essentially, you know, just saying that the judge overstepped it because he said that, you know, he'd put timelines on when things should be reduced by and that's outside the, the scope of a judge. But as though that's the important thing in this case, which is not they should be spending the money on, you know, regulating the site, you know, making things better for those people. So they're kind of doubly disgusted by the Environment Agency now. It hasn't done them any favours in the eyes of the local community. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah but there's, there's a bit of kind of, it's almost like there's a bit of cognitive dissonance going on because it's kind of, you, you have the, the agency... On the, on the one hand, it's it's fighting this judgment, which which would presumably require it to clean up the landfill or, or take action to reduce the emissions quicker. But then, on the other hand, um, the, the the other the other big development in this case that w- was before Christmas was that the um, the shortly after that ruling, the, the agency announced it was going to launch a criminal investigation into the operator of Wallace Quarry. Although the although the campaigners are very upset about it, the Environment Agency is 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 taking some action or, or may, maybe belated action to, 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 to look into this. Yeah, and hopefully this will, will, will get to the root of the matter. Although, as we all know, the investigations can take a really long time and then the prosecution's even longer. So by the time the community gets any satisfaction, I well, I don't know how long that would that's actually going to take. Um, do you know any specifics of uh, what's being looked at in the criminal investigation, Jamie? We don't know much about the investigation um, because the... EA has only issued a very brief statement um, because the the investigation the investigation is ongoing. We we only really know that it relates to alleged legal waste activities and and it follows new information that was received in October. Um, and and the landfill operator, um, Red Industries, says it has never contravened waste regulations. So yes, that's right. So uh, in a statement, Wallace Quarry has said it has never received or dispose of hazardous waste in contravention of any regulations, and any allegations that he's ever done so are baseless and wrong. There are no grounds whatsoever for this investigation or the unprofessional way it has been publicised by the Environment Agency as a supposedly responsible regulator. Despite this, the company will cooperate fully with the EA investigation so the true facts can be established and made known at the earliest opportunity. The next story we're going to talk about is about England's national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty. So these beautiful areas of our country are set to be overseen by a new body. They're currently looked after by uh, the National Parks Authority in the main, but there's going to be a big shake-up. Tess, you've been reporting on this. <laughs> yes, I have. Um, yes, it does look like there's going to be a big shake-up. It is worth noting it's not actually been formally announced anywhere, but it's been briefed, it seems, to the Telegraph um, by the government that uh, they're planning to change massively how the, our national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty are managed. 
Um, this seems to be trailing ahead of a long-awaited government response to Julian Glover's Landscapes Review, which came out in 2019, which was quite a long time ago now. And in this recommendation document, Julian Glover, he he recommended a new national landscape service, which would act as a, a unified body for England's 44 national landscapes and 10 national parks and um, you know, 34 areas of outstanding national beauty. So lots of things. Because um, at the moment, he said it was all very fragmented and is not organised enough to do anything worthwhile for the environment. And he said if he had a new service, could have new protection, responsibilities, titles and funding, that sort of thing. And so what the government has said, as reported in the Telegraph anyway, is that it intends to create a new national landscapes partnership, which would be able to put bids into government for funding, lead tourism and media campaigns and that sort of thing. So it looks like it's going to take the shape of something like what Julian Glover recommended, but the detail uh, is yet to come out. And what do the National Parks Authority, I mean, what, what do they think about it, given that they're yeah. responsible at the moment? It's a bit of a slap in the face for them. <laughs> yeah, well, the reaction has been cautious, none more so than from the National Park Authorities. Um, as you say, they currently manage the parks and They've said they they you know they're looking forward to working with Defra on this, but they do in the statement they gave me when I asked what they thought about it all. You know, I spoke to Richard Benwell, who's the chief executive of the Wildlife and Countryside Link, which is a uh, which is a coalition of uh, environmental NGOs. Um, yeah, he said this could all be really good. It just needs to be properly funded, properly resourced, led by experts in conservation, uh, and then it could be very good. But um, yeah, not everyone. You know, there, there are other, other views that this could be DEFRA diverting funds away from actually improving the environment consciously or, or not. Uh, and if you just funded the current national park authorities properly, maybe they'd be able to achieve what any new service could. So there's a bit of scepticism, to say the least, about what a new kind of governing body could actually do for these landscapes. Yeah. I think I mean, some of these national parks have got a really bad rep and they've been criticised a lot in the park for not being the most sort of, you know, diverse landscapes, really. Um, I know that some of them, well, George Mumbio, for example, who's mm. a lifelong environmentalist and Guardian columnist, he's been ranting about them for a really long time and with, you know, with good reason, saying that, you know, these are sheep scraped wastelands <laughs> because they're just, you know, the sheep are out there and everything's gone uh, pretty yeah. much. And if you look at some of the hills in the Lake District or Snowdonia and places like that, there's just big bare hills. And yeah. I know that's not that's not the case everywhere, but uh, a huge swathes of the landscape is like oh. that. And hopefully this could be an improvement. It's kind of hear, interesting, hear. isn't it, as well in the, yeah, here, here. <laughs> it's interesting in, um, in in context of this, um, the government's target to protect 30% of Britain's land for nature by 2030, because my understanding is that national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty and other protected areas already comprise 26% of the land in, in England. But but if, if you, if basically a lot of them are, um, was it Rachel, sheep scraped hellscapes or something <laughs> something like that, then it doesn't really... Uh, exactly. That 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 kind of um, target doesn't feel very meaningful, and and if I suppose if if the if the outcome of that government response to review does actually lead to a um, kind of a step change in how these places are dealing with nature and biodiversity, then and that's going to be a good thing. Absolutely, absolutely. So when's the next thing we need to look out for, Tess? On this, when's the government response? Well, it should be very soon. There's no, there, it was meant to be end of last year. Okay. It's now very soon. That's that's the as specific as I can be. <laughs> Edge of your seat stuff. 
and hopefully maybe we'll be able to update her in one of the next uh, editions of the Ecochamber podcast. But one of the highlights of the previous Ecochamber podcast was our top of the uh, poops quiz, which is we're bringing back by popular demand. I think both of them said they wanted to see her again. So let's. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're going to do another round of top of the poops. I'm going to hand over to Quizmaster, editor of the Underport, Jamie Carpenter. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel, and, and apologies to uh, anyone who might be having their lunch at the moment. Um, so to to recap, there's um, there's a mysterious new website, topofthepoops.org, which has um, appeared on the internet and has, has pulled together a load of sewage spill data and we, we we don't know who is responsible but whoever is doing it is is doing a remarkable public service um so i, I think i think last time we looked at the the water companies that were discharging discharging the most sewage and and the parliamentary constituencies with the most sewage spills but there are other other ways you can cut the data as well so um thought today we could look at um the rivers that have received the most sewage in 2020 so um, in, in terms of hours of sewage discharge, it's mm. um, a nice a nice thought. Um, so, but Tess, would you like to have a guess? I'll give you a clue. Um, sewage was discharged into this river for nearly 37 hours in, sorry, 37,000 hours in 2020. <laughs> oh, um, my gut instinct is to go for the Thames, just because I feel like I'm often I'm often writing about pollution in the Thames. That'd be my take. I'm afraid it's it's not the Thames. Oh. Ra- Ra- Rachel, have you got um, any, any any guesses? Um, I mean, if you've got to think it's a highly populated place, so you know, the, I thought I think mm. I would have thought the Thames would have been my first go as well. But somewhere, maybe I don't know the ooze. <laughs> it's um, it's actually it's the River Severn. Seven. So, um, so that's seven Trent water. So three thousand five hundred twenty-two sewage incidents, thirty-six thousand six hundred five hours of sewage. Um, and I think, I think the very proud. yeah, exactly, exactly. And they're also number two in the list as well with River, River Trent. So they've really, they've really got the uh, <laughs> got the top of the table sewn up. Um, so oh, surely number one is number two anyway, but. <laughs> oh, um, but I think I think the point about Tem, the Thames, though, I think a lot to do with it. So, so the, the, these these figures are only the the data that is reported. So um, it doesn't necessarily mean that River Seven, in reality, is having the most sewage pumped into it, because it could be that the Thames is getting more, and probably is. But Thames Water is not reporting it as much. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that's it from Big Green News. We're going to move on to our next section now, which is a deep dive, where Jamie and I are going to be talking about the killer whale apocalypse. And just a point to listeners to note that if this section sounds a little bit different, this is a pre-recorded section and we have since been thrust out of our office because of Omicron, so we're all working from home now. So if you detect a little sound change, that's because we're all cooped up in um, box rooms uh, in various places uh, across the country. Now, in this next segment, Jamie and I are going to talk about PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls. These are chemicals which are used in lots of industrial processes as plasticizers in paints, plastic and rubber, and they're used in pigments and dyes and all sorts of things. They were made in massive volumes in the 1960s. But as ever with a lot of these things, there's a bit of a sting in the tail. So, Jamie, can you tell me about the problems associated with these PCBs? Yeah, absolutely. This is a really 
big intractable problem. Um, and, and when we wrote, we ran a feature about this in 2020, uh, I think it's one of, probably one of the most important and powerful pieces of work that ENS has done in, in, in recent years. Um, it's still on the website if you want to go and have a look, ensreport.com. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it, kind of, it kind of feels like that, that that feature had almost like all the components of a, a blockbuster movie. So instead of the line which in a wardrobe, it could have been the vicar, the toxin, and the killer whales, or maybe the chemical, the priest and the orcas or something like that. <laughs> You've definitely got to explain that now. <laughs> I've got to explain that now, absolutely. So, so yeah, so what, what's all this got to do with killer whales? You're probably wondering. I was. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, PCBs, they, they were manufactured a long time ago, um, but they were banned in the US in 1979, the UK in 1986, and, and there was an international ban under the Stockholm Convention, which finally entered in force in, in 2004. Um, but while they've been banned for many years now, PCBs are actually still present in the environment and they're, they're, they're devastating for wildlife. In what way are they devastating for the wildlife and how are they still in the environment now if they were manufactured in the 60s and 70s? Well, I, I mean, you, you can look at um, killer whales for, for the impact they're having. So about five years ago, one of the UK's last killer whales, who's called Lulu, was found dead on the coast of Scotland. Um, and tests later revealed that her body contained among the highest levels of PCBs ever recorded. And because PCBs are bioaccumulative... That means essentially the higher up the food chain you are, the greater your PCB load is likely to be. And that, that's really bad news for killer whales. Um, and any least, mammals, anything. Any, the, yeah, 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 I think there are examples of, of birds, uh, harbour porpoises. Yeah. Um, I was reading somewhere that um, because PCBs are lipophilic, which means they sort of dissolve in sort of fats and oils, that it goes into the milk of the mother. So when the mother whale or whatever it is is feeding the baby or the calf, then they dump a huge load of PCBs straight into the into the baby and it's, it's contaminated straight away and it's having devastating impacts on um, populations of orcas and things like that. Yeah, and that is, I mean, it's been described as by, by academics as um, the killer whale apocalypse. So they, they believe that PCBs could lead to half the world's killer whale population disappearing within just 30 to 50 years. Half the world's killer whale yeah. population. Wow. So is anything being done about it? I mean, obviously they've been banned, but if it's still in the environment, is this because these are one of these forever chemicals that just simply don't break down and they just move around? Yes, exactly. So th- th- that's the problem. And I think there's a big question around how who, who is paying for the cleanup and whether that's happening to the, the necessary degree. So if, if you look to the, U- the, the United States... There have been, a, I suppose, a series of very high-profile PCB disasters that have resulted in Monsanto, which was, was the, the main manufacturer of PCBs and later taken over by Bayer, um, that they've been ordered to, to fork out eye-watering sums of money. Um, yeah, but- I think one of the first one of those was Love Canal, wasn't it, by... Um- William T. Love was hoping to build a canal between two sections of the river, but he never got it finished for various reasons. And it, ended, it was just filled up with lots and lots of toxic waste. And then later that was sold to one of the uh, local authorities and then they built lots of houses around it. And then, uh, as you would expect, after a while, um, leachate starts to appear and chemical drums start to sort of bulge out of the ground and a lot of people living around it get very, very sick. And I think that was almost the start of America's environmental movement. It was the first site to become a Superfund site, which is where the government will allocate lots of money to clean up under sort of emergency conditions. Um, But I think we have some of our own sort of mini love canals here in the UK, although nowhere near as um, dramatic as that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you you have these series of major payouts in the US. So Love Canal, I think that was um, resulted in $207 million worth of damages. Um, There was another case in 2003, which is $700 million. There's even a couple of cases 
earlier this year where where Bayer had was told to pay out hundreds of millions of dollars to students and others who said they were exposed to PCBs in a school building in Washington State. And it's just emerged in the last few days that the state of Maryland is suing Bayer for money to clear up contamination in the state's waterways. And Bayer on that, on that occasion is saying that the claim is without merit. Um, but but I think the as as you, you kind of suggest that while, while those claims are absolutely massive in the UK, the the picture has been very different and, and Monsanto manufactured PCBs in huge quantities in the UK and in, including at plants in Newport in South Wales and Rabun in the in the north but um, we haven't seen that kind of level of payout happening. No not at all in fact there seems to be some kind of well reluctance for a particular institution or another to take uh, responsibility so under UK law a site that's contaminated is either the council's responsibility or, if it's really bad, it's passed on to the Environment Agency and called a special site. But what's happened over the years is that the amount of money that the government has given to councils to find these sites and clean them up has uh, dwindled and now it doesn't exist at all. So obviously councils can't really do a great deal about it. Yeah, and and, and just to go, to go back to the um, fairly cryptic reference to the, the vicar in the um, at the top of the, the, the segment... Um, I think this issue was drawn to our attention before the pandemic. I, I took a call from a reverend, Paul Cawthorn, and I, I was really intrigued by what he had to say about this issue. Um, and I think as all good editors do, they look for someone who's who's up for a bit of a wild goose chase and kind of hand the story over to them. Um, so I'll ask you to look at it, Rachel. Uh, yeah, thank you. That was uh, that was very interesting, wild goose chase. It wasn't a wild goose chase in the end. It's actually fascinating. And I think what it has done is unearthed um, is literally sort of the tip of the the iceberg. Really, there is this is a group of um, landfills that we know about that contain PCBs and all sorts of other stuff. But across the UK, there are thousands and thousands of these landfills that are just sort of sitting quietly underneath farmers' fields or schools or in uh, and housing and places like that. Some have been remediated and cleaned up. Some haven't. Um, but it's a big problem, and there are lots of ticking time bombs out there. And we need to kind of be paying more attention to this issue. I think absolutely. And I, I think I think one of the things that surprised me from the work you did on this is is that the chemical plant in Newport, the Solutia plant, is still actually discharging PCBs into the Severn estuary, even though that we know, I mean, albeit in small quantities, or we, we know what a problem these are for mammals like like killer whales. But that that PCB is still being discharged right now. Yeah. I was talking to some NGOs about that and they were really shocked to find out that's happening. There's a permit to do it, so it's not illegal, but um, it's really not going to be helping those killer whales that we were talking about at the top of the section. Um, and as well as that pipe going out into the Severn estuary, um, PCBs are so bad that people would rather just leave them in the ground than dig them up and sort of clean them up and do whatever it is that they have to do to them to make them safe. So when they were constructing the M4, they obviously assessed the ground that they're going to go and build the road on. And they saw that there was a big PCB cell, so some PCB bells, and under one of the old industrial sites. And instead of sort of build taking it out or building through it, they've um, sort of literally built a flyover over that section so they don't have to disturb the PCB. So that's that's how toxic these chemicals are, especially in those quantities. I've been to Wales many times and been over the, the M4 a lot of times without having any clue that there were some really, really horrible chemicals just beneath my wheels. Okay, that is fascinating stuff. Thank you, Jamie. Moving on to our next segment, we have Simon and Gareth with the Chemical Brothers. Thanks, Rachel. In a crowded field, the weed killer glyphosate is one of the best known and most controversial pesticides out there. It's used by farmers and it's used by gardeners alike. 
And it's the active substance, or it, it previously was the active substance in a well-known brand of herbicide called Roundup, which was marketed by German agrochemicals company Bayer, although they've since changed their formulation. In recent years, it's come under a huge degree of scrutiny because of its possible link to cancer, specifically non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There's well over 100,000 existing claims and lawsuits against Bayer who took over Monsanto, who was a US business that originally formulated it. The company set aside $10 billion to settle those cases, although it doesn't have any, um, uh, it has had no admission of liability. Um, and it maintains that the glyphosate is still safe to use. In Europe, this is also a hot topic. Uh, at the moment, the EU is deciding whether to authorise glyphosate for another five to ten years. Um, the current authorisation will expire in December 2022. But the process has been controversial and has come under heavy criticism from campaigners. So where have we got to regarding the EU authorisation process? At the moment, we have two regulators involved in this. We've got the European Chemicals Agency and we've got the European Food Safety Authority, known as ECA and EFSA. Um, they've just closed parallel consultations on glyphosate. Um, ECA has been looking into the labelling that um, products containing glyphosate need to have on them. Um, at the moment, labels need to say that they uh, that glyphosate is liable to cause eye damage and is toxic to aquatic life with long-lasting effects. So ECA is effectively looking to see whether that's still the case uh, or whether it needs to update its labelling. In the light of uh, more recent scientific studies. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, and EFSA, so the European Food Safety Authority, has got the much more controversial job of assessing the case to renew the authorisation as a whole. So say this process is controversial. Can you um, elucidate? <laughs> well, um, the reason it's controversial is um, uh, glyphosate, as we know, has been linked to cancer by some studies. But an assessment by four member states, basically, I mean, I don't want to go into the ins and outs of the authorization process, but member states have to submit a dossier. The expert bodies from four member states, France, Hungary, Netherlands and Sweden, um, published an assessment in June where they basically said that glyphosate as far as they can see, judging by the evidence, doesn't have any severe impact on human health. And that's um, extremely different to uh, other conclusions, isn't it? It, it is, it is. Um, um, they, they do recommend some new measures. So the, the draft report that they published recommends a more conservative reference values when they're doing the risk assessments. And it suggests that the um, current labelling should remain so that it should continue to be labelled as being very toxic to aquatic life with long-lasting effects. So uh, is that the end of the story then? Well, here's the thing. So um, campaigners heavily contest this um, version of, of, of this interpretation of the data. And they're principally concerned with the quality of the data that they've been using to assess the safety of glyphosate. Um, Friends of the Earth Austria recently published a study where they look at the they look at the studies being used to assess its health impacts and they say that the methodology behind a lot of these studies when it comes to genotoxicity uh, are not credible obviously the member states and the eu regulators contest this version of events uh, or contest this narrative but it's really far from the first time that we've seen criticism of how the EU approves pesticides, generally speaking and in 2018 we had a special committee set up by the european parliament to look into this that found what it saw as systematic failings in the approval process. So it's um, the process is effectively set up to succeed from the uh, pesticide producers' uh, perspective. I, I mean, so the campaigners state, yeah. One of the things that complicates um, the glyphosate reassessment is the new German government, mm. um, which actually was agreed at the end of November. And as part of its of, of the coalition deal between the FDP, the SPD and the 
Greens, um, crucially the Greens here, um, has said it's going to push to phase out glyphosate by 2023. So this is going to shift the balance of power among the EU member states who are ultimately a key player in deciding whether or not to, re- beyond any of the scientific assessments, they're the key player in deciding whether or not to author- reauthorise it. So uh, what's going on in, uh, here in the UK then? Um, well, you may have heard of a, a, there's a thing called Brexit. Surely not. Uh, it gets a bit complicated. I mean, in Great Britain, that is the UK minus Northern Ireland, we have now our own regulatory process. We don't, we, we, we're no longer bound by EU decisions when it comes to authorising pesticides or the active substances in pesticides. So what the GB regulator did, the health and safety executive, um, was to give an automatic reauthorization of three years for all active substances. And so that includes glyphosate. Glyphosate was due to expire by 2022. Because of this three-year extension, it's now going to expire in December 2025. So we're a little bit behind the EU, and we're, probably this conversation will only really get, get going a, a little bit later on. Uh, so what are the implications of the pesticide not being authorised in the EU? I mean, this would be a huge deal. Um, glyphosate is an extremely, I mean, it's not just popular among households and local councils and um, used on railways, it's used all over the place. And it's also extremely important for a lot of farmers who use it as a desiccant. So they use it to dry out their crops after they've been come to maturity. This is like things like potatoes, for example, I mm, think. Yeah. And it's also used um, in something called no, non-till, no-till farming. Um, and no-till farming is where instead of ploughing the fields, you have a cover crop um, and you basically leave the soil undisturbed. And the way you basically remove that cover crop is to spray glyphosate over the plants to kill them. And no-till farming is, from a climate change perspective, great because it means you don't disturb the soil, which releases carbon. But they are quite dependent on glyphosate. So non-authorization would be quite a big deal for a lot of farmers. And uh, one of the criticisms I've heard about glyphosate not being approved, if that does transpire, would be that the alternative pesticides are actually worse in some respects. I mean, that seems to be, I mean, a, a conversation that's going on. I don't really, really want to delve into whether the ins and outs of that. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the, that's certainly one of the, one of the arguments that you hear a lot in the EU. Yeah, it sounds like a conversation that's going to go on for quite a while. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> That brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to our editor, Jamie Carpenter, and journalist, Tess Colley, Gareth Simpkins, and Simon Pickstone. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been talking about, please go to theendsreport.com where you'll find a lot more detail. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you next time. The Eco Chamber was produced by Ade Bambala from Rethink Audio.